Boraway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello again, and welcome to another thrilling episode of The Spark Parade. I'm Adam Unz. Thanks for joining me. Coming up a bit later on will be my chat with Simon Arizpe, who is a paper engineer and illustrator. Simon wanted to talk about a few things, and I'm a real people pleaser, so I said, have at it, sir. We spoke about Charlie Harper, who was an illustrator who had a big influence on Simon's work, uh, the filmmaker Michelle Gondry, and Titus Kafar, who is a painter and sculptor. We covered a lot of ground, but I think you'll find it satisfyingly entertaining as well as informative, both at the same time. But before we get into my conversation with Simon, I want to talk a bit about editing. Now, editors are the mostly unsung heroes in the creation of art. They give shape to books, TV shows, films, plays, you name it, whittling things down distilling artworks to their essence, trimming the fat, and tightening plot lines, helping directors and writers and actors to rein in their instincts and to see which bits of their work need to be emphasized and which bits need to be eliminated. And sometimes, when an artist becomes very successful, they begin to lose sight of the power and importance of editing. This leads to 24-track albums and 1,000-page books and superhero movies that are over three hours long. Now, I'm not equating greatness with brevity, but sometimes success impedes the ability of artists to think critically about their own work. When you are surrounded by sycophants, intentionally or not, it can become increasingly difficult to convince yourself that your work isn't being stifled by editing. Look, I liked Avengers Endgame. I'm a Marvel fan, and I don't envy the task of weaving all those storylines together. But I also think they could have used a little less self-indulgence and a little more editing prowess to whittle down that runtime. I know that leaves me in the minority, but I'm a huge proponent of the tight 90. 90 90-minute films. 90-minute plays with no interval. That's not always possible, and it's not always warranted. Some works of art demand more time, more pages, more tracks, more whatever. But the magic of good editing is being ruthless with your own work and forcing yourself to pare it down to its best possible version. When you work so hard to create art, it can be painful to adjust your vision of what your work should be. But compromise and sacrifice are also absolutely essential to the production of truly great art. Are all the Marvel fans going to troll me forever now and ruin my life? Probably. (sighs) Oh well. 
What can you do? So, now that we have my waffling out of the way, let's move ahead to my conversation with Simon Arizpe about Charlie Harper, Michelle Gondry, and Titus Kafar. So, Charlie Harper? Charlie Harper, yes. Do you remember how you got turned on to him? I do, yeah. Um, my old boss, Matthew Reinhardt, he is an illustrator and a studied his undergrad in biology. And so he really introduced me to Charlie Harper's work. I think Charlie Harper was around in World War II and like the, mm. fi- the 40s and 50s. And so he's, you know, passed. But a lot of his work is just this really beautiful, super simple representational, like, ideas of nature and people and animals and biology. And so it's this, like, really beautiful mixture of, of like, when you have these, like, abstractions kind of that come together. So Yeah. He described his style as minimal realism and you know talking about like Mm -hmm. taking the natural object or you know being or whatever it is Mm -hmm. and distilling it down to its essence so you know having a bird and instead of having like each individual feather showing wings showing like the the boldest biggest parts of it that are kind of representational but i think the way he describes his work is like it's more abstract than it actually is because it's it to me the simplicity of it doesn't detract. It's not like you have yeah, to fill in the Yeah, it's really like taking mind. just like the essentials of a thing. And that can, that thing can be even just like a, a biological reaction or a, or a bird. It really doesn't matter. But then really just taking it and like playing with like the symmetry and playing with like the simplest version of it that you can still easily notice that it's like what it is and why it is. And right. So, yeah. yeah. And his work has so much color and so is so like vibrant yeah Um, and i yeah i think the idea of like kind of playing also with patterns has been like a big influence mm -hmm. on me just to say i mean it sounds really simple but just like taking these like this color palette that's like really in nature and you can really see just like see it in birds or the forest or something and then just like playing with these recognizable shapes and abstracting them down and and yeah and i I can i've (laughs) on uh if you google him you can see like uh, pillowcases and things that have been uh, adorned with his designs and a lot of them are tessellated and it's I think that yeah shows you how simple the designs are as well that they you know the way that they all can fit together yeah <laughs> like puzzle pieces yeah um, so in, yeah and like the last like 10 years or so he's be, it's become he's become really prolific and is in you know posthumously but just I think that it's I kind of think it's because you know like how postmodern furniture is or not uh, like mid-century furniture is just like kind of always has this very classic look i also Mm -hmm. i'm very curious if that also goes forward with like mid-century design and illustration because there's this just there was this simplification because of like world war ii and because of all of these other external reasons that made things very simple and very clean and i kind Mm -hmm. of like i wonder if that looks good always for those reasons you know it's just this abstraction right and that simplicity i think also kind of makes it timeless that it's Totally. It, it could yeah. fit into any time period. It doesn't really feel like, right. you know, even though you know it's mid-century, it doesn't feel like it specifically represents the 50s or... Right, like something in the 80s or the 70s has this very, like, kind of, these other kind of gaudy, bigger sort of ideals in it, but there's something mm-hmm. really, yeah, sim- like, will always be classic about something simple. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, I also... Uh, as you said, like the fact that he focuses so much on the natural world or is one of the things that I find really relatable about his work is that it's these images of things that are distilled down to basically their Mm -hmm. essence, but it's also very 
everyday natural yeah. things that people you know see right um it feels kind of like you know walking in the woods like right um, and it's and it is that like line he's playing with that line where it's like you he's taking it to its lowest point where it's like you just you just barely know it's a duck or whatever you just barely know that it's a snowscape but like you will still be able to recognize it but almost not almost it just looks like a field of white or almost it just looks like this right color palette so yeah yeah um there's something about it that feels it's like more sophisticated than children's illustrations but it does feel like stuff from books that i read as a kid as yeah. well so there's that kind of it's like timeless but nostalgic almost like it, it it's yeah. yeah and i wonder if the, i i do wonder if that's like because we're sitting like we're children of the 80s like the, we're, right. we're sitting in this moment where like that that was the kind of books our grand our parents were kind of looking at uh, i also have that giant book of his stuff right there i just realized on, on, the, <laughs> yeah. cra- on the bottom <laughs> Um, so, oh yeah! Oh my God! Uh, so I'm a fan. Um, yeah, but I think that like yeah, I think that there is this kind of it is the aesthetic we kind of grew up with. Even if we didn't notice, it has that like those bold colors of children's books and stuff. But because it's it's not really playing with like fiction, it's more just playing with kind of kind of what representation what the representational world has is, is I don't know. I think it makes it really beautiful. Yeah, and I always find it uh, interesting when there are elements of science and math that go into art and you know those Mm -hmm. those are essential parts of art even if it's not necessarily obvious to people who aren't trained in whatever right looking at like you know music is really mathematical but um the fact that he's using such simple geometrical shapes Mm -hmm. yeah um, and i feel like those choices are definitely they're meant to be there so that like even a person who's not paying attention to those like rules of three and those sort of like decisions of like geometric space we'll still see those and they'll resonate with people like walking in like a frank lloyd wright building and you're just like oh this i don't know why but this makes me feel these ways and i think like good illustration or good music should make you feel these feelings without even knowing why you're feeling right going to art school or music school or some i I can remember studying music and feeling kind of frustrated and excited that it was so mathematical that it's like yeah, I don't, I don't really want to do math. I just want to make music. But knowing that, like, the mathematical components are what make the yeah you know, like make or, mastery of music possible. Absolutely, um, or at least like playing, knowing it, and then playing with it. Like, no, once mm-hmm. you know those formulas, and once you know like the minor versus the major key, or you know these color shifts, like, then you can play with them. Then you can take these like moments and really like fuck with it, and like yeah, right. And the same thing with um, painting and drawing that like composition and structure having that kind of foundation and knowing yeah like you totally need to look at the renaissance you totally need to look at these people who kind of took the order a little bit too far and then you're like okay now we can now we can play around with that and now we can right very 21st century it and yeah and it all is like you know math um in composition and shape and structure and science in the subject matter that he's uh working Mm -hmm. with with you know biology and um also sort of human psychology knowing um yeah. creating things that are going to uh like like evoke a reaction right, like right, yeah right. If there's a big red scene you're gonna like the redness is going to do something to your body and also seeing that cow being butchered you know like right. there's these like these choices that you do make because you know that your audience is going to be these humans who react to colors differently and yeah another thing on him that i thought was really interesting when i was doing a little research for this uh for today was that he got kind of his start or he, he kind of honed his skills um 
doing um, illustrations, reportage illustrations in World War II. Mm -hmm. And so he he took his kit and would go around and and do drawings of the battlefield, which is something that the the U.S. Army used to do more of. Now they have um, photographers more, but they they used to have a, a robust illustration department. Um, and so he said that he got a lot of his ability to just really take things down to their most essential forms in the in wartime mm-hmm. in on, in France. Yeah, that's amazing, um, and that all makes sense. Like you right, can, right, you're you like know, feel that kind of. It's not a five minute yeah. pose. It's a yeah. war scene. You know, it's like a battle scene, and you're kind of like, cool. I have like two minutes to like really capture this, and then I gotta go. And I think that combined with like I'm just looking at this quote from him where he's saying when he looks at wildlife or nature, uh, I don't see the feathers in the wings. I just count the wings. I see exciting shapes, colors, combinations, patterns, textures, fascinating behavior and endless possibilities for making interesting pictures. And I think that combined with the like wartime. Totally. Uh, yeah we have to grab the essence of what we're seeing and mm-hmm. get the fuck out Gra- of here. I think, I think grab is a really good word for <laughs> yeah. it. Just like take what you can and then like move on. Yeah. And I think, I think for me too, it was like when I, when I was first introduced to his work, I was probably like just out of college and I was kind of in a slump of just like, what am I doing with my life and why am I in New York city? And I think seeing his work really like let me kind of look at New York city differently and kind of abstract it and say like, okay, it is really all these like very strange human-made grids and shapes. They all have sort of biological components in them. It's like if you look at the map of the city, it's a big heart, you know, and people go in and out. And there's, mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds a little cheesy, but like it is these circulatory systems and it's these decisions. And so I think looking at his work got me to be more interested in looking at New York City and, and appreciating, you know, we have these giant lungs and they're the two parks and we have all these like, we're in an estuary and we're an archipelago and those like there's all these weird choices that have been just like caked over and over and over again for the last like 300 years and they're what make this city functional and what make the city kind of very beautiful in some ways in some ways the job of an artist is to distill all of those ideas into yeah you know something tangible that people can uh you, you know you can present to people and um, yeah that's the hope is yeah that, yeah that you can like take it and really kind of make something beautiful out of it and remember like what is interesting and what is you know worth um shedding um in in the interest of time i should probably move along to topic two which is michelle gondry i i'm assuming like the music videos are the kind of first point of reference or yeah movies i mean i think the music videos were for me and like any kid in the 90s was like watching MTV and freaking out about the Daft Punk video and like you know I remember like being my brother calling me from the other room every time it would show up because you just had to wait for it to come back on and just Mm -hmm. seeing it and then realizing that you know like just like yeah as a little kid just not even realizing what I was looking at but just loving the Daft Punk video the Bjork's human behavior video Mm -hmm. and then like the Foo Fighters um Everlong video. I remember just all of those. Just I didn't know they were the same person. I didn't know who Michelle Gondry was. I didn't know where France was. But <laughs> I just remember being like, all of these are so strange, and I just really feel like I'm watching someone else's like world, like very clearly. Like I don't, I don't understand what's going on, but it all like the tactile quality of it, of it all feels so at home and natural mm-hmm. and not not like sophisticated, not like trying to to keep me away because I don't understand, but just like ambiguous it allow it allows you to kind of 
look in and make your own judgments and and just even as a little kid i was like oh like yeah (laughs) yeah and uh that kind of diy aesthetic that's like taking simple stuff yeah using practical effects yeah um and coming up with like you know conceptual videos that may or may not have anything to do with the song on the surface, but it fits so Mm -hmm. perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Like I think all the Daft Punk videos, it's like this singular vision, really clear ideas. Yeah. So it's like, um, it's this kind of dance party with these like monsters and Mm -hmm. skeletons and bathers. Right. And, and then once you look really closely and then you like, look at how he does it, each one of the characters is a different musical note Mm -hmm. is a different instrument. Yeah. And I just remember like finding that out or like learning about that and just being just blown away at this idea that you could take, you you could take the object and have it represent a sound. And it just, it was very synesthetic, you know, just this Mm -hmm. idea that like, uh, that there's so much loaded in, in this skeleton person. But then on top of that, now they are also the sound of like a xylophone because it's their ribs. And it's like, it, those two things don't necessarily need to be connected, but there are all these subtle connections that are that are really subliminal and and very chosen i think with his work right and on the surface it's like you know they're kind of moving in a circle so i guess it's like around the world and right. it's a party they're all just like dancing so yeah. it's a kind of a dancey song yeah so that's great. and you can you can take it as as shallow or as deep as you want like right. you can just watch it and be like that is a very silly video and move and a very silly song and move on or you can really like dig deep and be like why are those things those colors yeah um yeah so i I think just like i've always just been really impressed by by his work and and just the way he's willing to like let you in he's not really trying to make you yeah feel like you can't engage in it Mm -hmm. and i i think for me also just like seeing um, eternal sunshine Mm -hmm. um for the first time i think i was in college or something and uh i just really remember seeing it in Massachusetts, like I remember the theater and everything, and um, and just walking out of that and just thinking that was the most beautiful thing I'd seen mm-hmm. at that time, just because it was these choices, like these choices of like keeping everything in camera, or for the most part keeping things in camera, and just how that really affects the tactile quality. Like I, there's there's one scene where he he lives in this moment, and then when he remembers the moment, he's talking to a person, but there's like a a frosted piece of glass between mm-hmm. him and the other guy he's talking to and now that it's a memory he can't quite see his face he can't quite hear him as well but it's the same scene like they shot it one after the other and there's just something so beautiful about deciding to choose to describe forgetting a memory as putting a piece of frosted like shower glass in your way and I just mm-hmm. yeah. and I remember seeing the movie and having that kind of frosty effect that you know, could have been computer generated or it could have been done on a split screen or something like that. And then seeing pictures from the set where it's like people literally holding this like scratched up kind of milky piece of glass behind Jim Carrey and all of the effects in the film are like that, where it's like his, that's to me, his absolute creative genius. And it's like you said, it makes it feel so much more visceral and tactile, but it, you you know there really is a significant difference when yeah. everything is real. That like all the props and all of the mm-hmm. scenery, especially with kind of like dreamlike effects. Yeah, that's and because because you and I both can like think of the temperature of that probably fake like, plexiglass or whatever. You know, there's there's so many different components. Whereas like CG is going to be an illusion of that, and it's and it can be a very effective illusion, but there's something weird about 
you know, a, like there's probably two guys holding that pane of glass, and there's something really weird about the way the light falls on that, and just yeah, so right. And um, I think his his music videos, um, going back to that yeah. uh, briefly, came. He was making music videos at probably close to the peak of the form, like when music videos That's were a really still good point. Yeah. really in the public consciousness. And it was like pre-YouTube when totally. you know, people would watch videos on TV and they were more of an event. Right. But that he was also part of this small group of video directors who were like absolutely prolific and so intensely creative. I and mean, people like Spike Jones and David Fincher and who, people who went on yeah, to make films. Yeah. Um, but his stuff in particular, that kind of visceral, tactile yeah. DIY aesthetic coming into his music videos as well um, gave me the same feeling as mm-hmm. um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And also because he worked with a lot of artists who yeah. I really loved right. as well. Yeah, that they're actual, um, like the musicians he was working with were amazing. But yeah, you're right. There, that was also like this kind of crucial time because, you know, the, just the ability to make a music video got a lot cheaper in that 10 years when it was you know, you're going to digital instead of film, you're, you can do a lot of like, a lot of things very, very simply and easily. And so, yeah, that was kind of a very good time to be making music videos. Right. The artists that he chose to work with as well, like choosing people to work with or being chosen by people who really understood his work and their music really fit the yeah the vision that he like had. it's it's already kind of strange music right can, it's not you know it's not necessarily too mainstream it's already these kind of strange choices of people who are making these cool choices with their music so yeah right i think they're great fits artists like the white stripes where i think he had an enormous um he was an enormous part of their success oh absolutely yeah you're totally right like that that they kind of it, because they're, especially because their aesthetic is so visual, like for them to be able to say like these are these music videos you're going to get into, you maybe wouldn't have heard us, you maybe wouldn't have listened to us. Yeah, and making the kind of work that Michelle Gondry was making, where um, in some ways it was like taking complex ideas that I mean, yeah, in, the the theme of this podcast is taking <laughs> complexity and uh, distilling it down to its essence, um, exactly. but taking those complex ideas and like the around the world video where it's you know using simple uh costumes and right. simple and, and recognizable themes and right. just these yeah these very uh, approachable th- themes that you can yeah yeah and own and take and like bring into your own consciousness yeah yeah and now people who are making stuff on youtube if they you know i don't think they necessarily have the money to have a you know sound stage and a big set like that mm-hmm. but ideas in that vein that are produced in people's homes that are really creative and people don't need to ask permission to make those yeah. things and i think that yeah i think that's what's kind of cool about about that is that people can can kind of do whatever the hell they want basically yeah. right right well i think that is a uh, a good uh, yeah. deep dive into Michelle yeah. Gondry. Uh, moving swiftly along, yeah. uh, Titus Kafar. Titus Kafar, yeah. So um, I, uh, I'm i teaching a, a class uh, in 3D illustration at Parsons right now, um, and I've just been trying to just, like, really teach my students about just kind of concepts of, like, when when you're using 
an object to tell a story and how you can play around with those ideas. Um, and I stumbled upon his work um, because he has a show coming up at the Brooklyn Museum next year. Oh, great. Um, and so what he does with his work is he, he t- makes reproductions of old Dutch and English and European paintings where there are slaves or ethnic minorities in the paintings, but mostly it's predominantly the white family, the rich family, the merchant family, the, the hero, um, the white hero in the painting. It's kind of in the foreground, and then there's these other characters, these lesser minority characters in the background. And what he does is he, he'll make a reproduction full size, you know, the, these beautifully painted images, and then he will whitewash out the white people. Basically, mm-hmm. and so you're left the focal point, the the humans in it become the other people, the minorities, and I just think it's a really interesting way to deal to to start conversations about race, about appropriation, but also like what do you do with the Confederate statues in the South? Mm-hmm. Do you get rid of them? Do you put them in a museum, and then all of a sudden you have a section of your museum that is the confederate history section of your museum is that good is that bad like i don't mm-hmm. i don't know the answers to those things but i think he is playing with a really cool way to start people talking about it mm-hmm. and i i love the idea of looking at these paintings that for centuries either excluded people of color but in particular black people or you know in the ted talk they did for npr he talks about seeing a painting where there's like, you know, white aristocracy and then like a black child kind of shoved in the corner. Yeah. And looking at the painting and being like, I want to know his story. And right. that making him the focus of the story. And instead of having a uh, painting that was obviously designed to be viewed by white people. Right. Um, by white people, for white people, where that person is, where that you know, that black person is just property. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're in there to show their wealth, the wealth of the white person. That's mm-hmm. the only reason. It's not because they're in the family photo, you know. Right. And the the whole thing about Confederate imagery and, and what to do about it and, like, his idea of instead of throwing it away or hiding it away or putting it in a museum and showing it as, like, yeah, this is the Confederate perspective. Amen- you know, he he talks about amending um, yeah. his- the 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 history that was presented and making it more accurate and making it inclusive, showing everybody who was involved in that story. So taking these um, sculptures, statues, and commissioning artists to counter them by showing how the black people who were oppressed and terrorized by these con- confederate generals were treated and what their lives were like in contrast right. to this you know and crowd that, and how do you how do you deal with that as a as a society as a group of people as as like a town if that's if it's you know if you're a small town and you're still very divided you know what do you do with these these monuments and and what what role does that monument play in in shaping our history? And so I think his idea of saying, well, the conversation's not over. We're in the middle of it right now. Let's amend. Like, amend mm-hmm. is not destroying. Amend is not keeping and maintaining. It's it's, it's this other choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's one of the biggest problems with, you know, it t- taking away... Conf- I, I, like, I, I believe that Confederate monuments should not exist in the way that they are now where it there's no point in them except to revere that past yeah and um when people who support them who are predominantly racist white people or whoever supports them (laughs) for whatever reason right 
look at them and never quite admit that it's glorifying something and that it's history out of context, that it's not acknowledging the full scope of what that person did. Right. It's just a very narrow. And I, I guess for me with those with a Confederate statue, I'm very curious when it was when they would have been erected, because they probably weren't erected like during or right after the Civil War. It would it would probably be a, like a political choice 100 years later. You know, I just in I'm, the 20th century. I'm just very. Them. Yeah, I'm just yeah. very curious. Like, you know, it's like Columbus Day was not we've not we haven't been celebrating Columbus Day in this country since Columbus landed. It's It's a newer sort of political decision. But I, I think that's when that gets interesting is how quickly something can go from a policy choice to embedded in our history. Mm-hmm. Like it just takes a couple generations to be like, oh no, it's totally normal. We always eat whale. That's a thing right. we do. Like, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that uh, this is a really good way of countering the argument that it, the reason that we have to um, allow Confederate monuments to exist is because it's a preservation of history and you can't ignore history. And it's like, great. Well, we need to have a full picture of what that history was. Totally. And right now, these monuments are presenting a a version of history that's not real. Um, Yeah, that is just (laughs) one-sided and continues a narrative that is is detrimental to that society. It's not helping anything. It's, It's, yeah perpetuating this sort of race gap and yeah right um in addition to just highlighting highlighting existing uh black figures in um his reproductions of paintings or adding black figures to um black people to uh paintings that are reproductions Mm -hmm. i really love the other things that he's done to the canvases like tearing or making holes yeah absolutely um, and the variety of choices is amazing as well um using so many different it's like it's all focusing on uh, you know the the crux of the matter is still this erasure of a whole subsection of um american society but um showing it in different ways and challenging people to to look at the that erasure in different ways yeah um uh, and the the breadth of those ideas is really and I, and i and i think that's like a very conscious choice to to create a a physical thing instead of a painting like he he starts with paintings and there's these two-dimensional things that are meant to be in a frame but like certain things in some of his paintings he will take he will make the choice to cut out the white person and put them on the back of the canvas, like on the stretchers, and make it into this 3D object that you have to walk around. And, and it, it creates this much more monumental awareness of the space instead of just being like, this is an image, this is fixed on the wall. There's magic. To, I think there's more magic to something on the wall and there's more authority to something on the wall. But when you when you can walk around it, when you could push it over if you really wanted to, like I think it, it, it creates more of a dialogue mm-hmm. with those. Yeah. Um, and just kind of trying to reclaim and reassert the place of black people in art history. You know, again, in that, that Ted talk, he talks about um, taking an art history class. It was like an overview of the entire history of art right. from like cave paintings onwards yeah. and saying that there was a like 20 page chunk in totally. this like in the, 400 in the, page book the, about black no, people. It's like the Jansen, like I knew the book he was talking about. It's like yeah. a thousand page book and there is like a, yeah, a African art or an African American art section. And mm-hmm. it's, an appendix you know right and that section includes 
black people depicted in art as well as creators of art. So it's like, you know, oh, we didn't really have enough uh, to talk about with actual black artists. So uh, we'll also talk about the uh, the times when people painted black people. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's just such a uh, it's such an obvious moment where you can tell who's writing the book. Right. You know, that, right, and, right. you know, and then then the, the converse of that would be to, to have a, a class in African art or African-American art. But then that that suddenly immediately becomes makes it a subculture and a side narrative, you know, instead of just making it part of the regular narrative that you're taught. Right. Um, yeah, I'm just looking again at some of his stuff and like, you know, cutting things out of pictures, rem- slicing some of the canvas so that it, it drapes yeah. across other parts of it, shredding canvases. And, and um, they're all very like transgressive verbs and very transgressive actions and just and taking it and saying i know this is like important art history but i'm gonna manipulate it i'm gonna rip it i'm gonna choose to to do more with it than just let it be right i think those those conscious choices are really important in his work yeah really incredible stuff so there we go i feel like that was uh satisfactory yeah i think we got it we got some things yeah, yeah. sounds good great um where do people find you if they want to find, find out about your work? Uh, they can find me on my website, um, Simon Arispe, A-R-I-Z-P-E, uh, dot com, or Great. on Instagram. Okay. Yeah. Or, you know, if they're lucky, they'll see you on the street. Or if they're lucky, they'll see me on the street. I'm usually just walking down Franklin Avenue. Up and down yep. all day long. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. This was a good one. That was awesome. He's such a great guy. Thanks again, Simon. Seek his workout, too. It's really incredible. Pop-up books and illustrations and lots of other really great stuff. Okay, so my recommendations for the week. Here we go. It has been a busy one for me. First of all, the most obvious one is Homecoming. For anyone who is abducted by aliens and has just landed back on Earth, it's a Netflix documentary about Beyonce's legendary Coachella performances. God, it's just so good. It's so good. Now, I'm coming from a place of fandom to begin with, but she's just an incredible human. Seeing all that work and preparation that she put into what is essentially a one-off event is just, it's mind-boggling. The whole thing made me want to cry. I didn't, but I wanted to. And the actual performance is, I can't. It's, it's just incredible. It's just, it's so joyful. And there are so many people involved in so many moving parts, but it's totally seamless. You never feel overwhelmed by the enormity of it. I know I'm gushing about something that everyone in the universe is also gushing about, but fuck, what an utter delight. Uh, Another thing that I have really been enjoying is I Think You Should Leave, which is Tim Robinson's new sketch show on Netflix. You may know him from Saturday Night Live because he used to be a cast member. Just a quick callback to the power of editing and knowing when to stop. These episodes are 15 minutes long or like 15 to 17 minutes long. Again, I'm not saying that I think everything should be 15 minutes long, but God, it is refreshing. And the show is mostly totally hilarious. There are a few sketches that are misfires, but the vast majority of them are weird and amazing. And there's some great cameos from other SNL folks too. So check that out. And lastly, I went to see All My Sons on Broadway. Now, this is a show that I have seen so many times, I feel like it's burned into my brain. 
Arthur Miller plays in general are all burned into my brain. And yet, Annette Benning, everybody. Fuck. She's so incredible. Such a natural, realistic, just astonishing performance. And she hasn't been on stage in 30 fucking years. Jesus Christ. And she just got nominated for a Tony for it. So since the Academy seems so hellbent on refusing to give her an Oscar, could someone please give this woman a Tony? Please. So go and see that if you're in New York. Uh, there. Is that enough? I think so. I think you've had your fill. Thanks again for listening. Uh, please remember to follow me on social media at Spark Parade. Also, all of the likes and comments and reviews and star ratings that you can muster, please throw them my way. They help a lot. Uh, other than that, you're the best. Until next week, bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.